Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled Case Management Strategies for Patients with ADPKD, Part 1, is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources. And this activity is supported by independent educational grants from Matsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello and uh, welcome to this webcast titled Optimizing the Care for Patients with ADPKD Case Management Strategies Part 1. I'm Fuad Shabib, an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic, Florida, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr. Pranav Garimela. Dr. Garimela, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Pranav Garimela. I'm an Associate Professor of Nephrology at the University of California, San Diego. In this webcast today, we're going to review several common cases and provide insights into practical evidence-based management and strategies to achieve optimal outcomes in patients with PKD. Before we get started, let's review our learning objectives. Upon conclusion of this educational activity, participants should be able to summarize a practical approach to diagnose and treat pain in ADPKD, identify characteristics of atypical kidney cystic diseases, review best practices in the identification and management of intracranial aneurysms in ADPKD, and describe the role of tolvaptan in patients with ADPKD age 55 and older. Let's start with our first uh, case. Um, I have a patient who is 28-year-old female who's coming in with an acute pain, mostly on the right flank side, but she also tells me that she has also a right upper quadrant pain as well. I'm curious, what's your approach uh, in a patient with ADPKD who has uh, such an acute pain? Um, thank you, Fuad. Uh, as you know, this is a pretty common presentation in uh, patients with polycystic kidney disease, uh, and unfortunately so. And as with all cases, it depends on how the patient presents. In your case, it's an acute pain. So this is something that has happened probably over the course of hours or days. And that narrows the differential diagnosis down to a few things at the top of the list that I'd like to start off with. Um, as with most people, people with PKD can also have infection-related pain. So the first thing I want to rule out that's probably the most important thing to consider is whether or not this patient has an infection that needs timely antibiotic treatment. Absolutely. So what I first look for is, is there anything to suggest an infection? Does this patient have um, a urinalysis to suggest something? Do they have any blood in their urine? Do they have uh, anything to suggest inflammation? And so th those would be the first things that uh, I'd like to understand as I branch down the uh, treatment algorithm. Yeah, so she has no fever and uh, we got her CRP and it's uh, uh, normal CRP, not elevated. Um, and then her urinalysis is bland with no pyuria um, and no, no urinary symptoms, no dysuria. Okay, so, so that's good. So that, that tells me that you know, the likelihood of a urinary tract infection in this person is very low. Um, and the, you, you, you gave me another clue there which said that she had pain in her flank and also in her, um, you know, um, the right upper quadrant, which makes me think that perhaps this is something that could be spanning both areas. And uh, common things being common in polycystic kidney disease, uh, I'm now beginning to think of either a cyst that may have ruptured or a cyst that's enlarged that could be pressing upon it. And so this could also be a cyst in the liver that could be presenting with symptoms. So now I'm thinking along more cyst-related pain rather than an infection. Yeah, that's that's great, uh, great uh, point that it's important to rule out any other non-cystic causes of pain. And that it, it seems that she has also a cyst uh, a rupture. Uh, so she tells you uh, 
now that after she had all this acute pain, she started having gross hematuria. Um, so, but she's in a lot of pain. And, and what would you recommend? Should we, she go to the emergency department for a, an abdominal imaging? Right. So again, it, it depends on how much of pain control is acutely needed. And as long as we've ruled out an infection, um, you know, I usually tend to avoid sending patients to emergency rooms if possible. Yes. Uh, so having them come back for an urgent care visit through our PKD program or something the next day would probably be what I would recommend if, 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 if it sounds like the patient can make it there. And I try to get some kind of imaging at that point. You know, if I can get an ultrasound early on, fine. But otherwise, a non-contrast CT sometimes is a good option because one other thing that patients also have that can present with blood without an infection is kidney stones. And mm-hmm. patients with PKD, as you probably have seen, have a lot of kidney stones um, as well. So that, that's what I'm thinking about next. Um, how about you? Where, where would you take this? Yeah, so uh, with, cyst, with cyst bleeding, typically it kind of resolves on its own. So a lot of times we ask them to rest, to hydrate themselves very well. Sometimes they might require a little bit more of IV uh, pain medications or coming in into the hospital if the bleeding is not stopping after a few hours or, or a couple of days. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of other options to stop the bleeding. Uh, most of the times we wait for it to stop on its own. Sometimes we do some uh, uh, interventions with embolization. Uh, we've had some success with that. Otherwise, we've had a couple of cases where we used trexinamic acid, um, and that was, that was helpful, but those are in, in, in severe cases. Wow. Um, that, 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 that's interesting. And, and, you know, like you've seen, some of these patients, even when the hematuria resolves, they tend to have chronic pain. Uh, you know, even after this acute episode resolves, once in a while, every few months or every few weeks, there's a flare-up of pain. Um, how do you typically approach someone who comes in now with chronic pain? Yeah, that's, that's a big deal in, in ADPKD patients. A lot of our patients with ADPKD live with chronic pain. And many times we, it's kind of disregarded. You know, we know it's from ADPKD, but we don't have too many options, and, and the patients feel they're not hurt. So it's important first to acknowledge that PKD causes pain. It's not in the patient's head. It's, it's true pain, and pain is, is complex, so, and especially with chronic pain. So we try to approach it in a multidisciplinary approach. There's a lot of conservative management uh, that we can do, uh, including uh, heat pads, uh, uh, some Tylenol, Sometimes even in, in acute pain, we can use two or three days of NSAIDs, which is acceptable. Although as nephrologists, we don't like NSAIDs, but in the acute setting, I think it's acceptable to use two to three days with good hydration. In the chronic pain uh, situation, it, it becomes more challenging because we don't want to use a lot of the uh, uh, pain, pain medications. Sometimes we need to use some narcotics. Uh, and then we go into procedures uh, have you done any procedures for chronic pain uh, interventions? Yeah, that, that, that's a great thing because, again, uh, most people tend not to want procedures. Uh, but if, if you could actually identify perhaps one or two cysts that may be culprit lesions, I think targeting those would probably be most beneficial. In patients who have generalized multiple large cysts, targeting a single cyst may end up getting you a procedure that actually doesn't resolve the pain. But if you can target them, uh, cyst aspiration is an option. Yes. Um, sometimes there is recurrence uh, of the fluid in the cysts, but foam sclerotherapy perhaps would uh, be a good option. There's been some data recently published over the last two or three years mm-hmm. showing about up to about 70 to 80% reduction in pain um, at follow-up uh, mm-hmm. after foam sclerotherapy. So it's definitely uh, something that can be considered. And there are newer technologies that perhaps, you know, uh, some 
uh, large PKD centers may be using, especially in conjunction with anesthesia yes. and regional pain management. Uh, and you know, we've had our colleagues in uh, uh, anesthesia consider the placement of implantable pain control devices. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know what your experience is with that. Yeah, we're exploring that with our colleagues in uh, anesthesia and trying to use some uh, uh, successful experiences in in pain other than PKD and then trying to apply it to PKD. We sometimes use uh, celiac plexus block to ensure that the pain is coming from uh, from that kidney. We also do some renal denervation sometimes. And then if all these fail, then we we start trying to do some innovations uh, such as these implantable devices. But it's kind of a stepwise approach it's complex, it's important to have a good relationship with the patient and have a kind of a team with, with your anesthesiologist, pain, pain clinic, yeah. um, and try to help them with, with uh, such a debilitating disease. There's also tolvaptan that has been shown to improve uh, pain by 17%, uh, or in 17% of the patients in Tempo 3-4, there was a good improvement with tolvaptan. So that's, that's potentially an option. If they are eligible otherwise, that would be uh, a good option. Great. Pain is a really complex topic, as you just, you know, kind of nicely summarized there. Great. Well, thank you. And uh, we'll move on to our next uh, case. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, for one of the things that sometimes strikes me as surprising is once in a while you get these patients who don't seem to have a very large cystic burden or they're, they're, they're older, they have a decreased GFR. And they have some family history of having cystic kidney disease. Very often, cystic kidney disease is attributable off the bat to, is attributed off the bat to ADPKD. But you know these patients have not often had a genetic diagnosis, and they come in. You do an imaging study, and there are cysts. There are cysts, but their kidneys aren't as enlarged as you would expect, perhaps, for someone with that degree of uh, GFR impairment. Um, how do you approach such cases? Yeah, those are very important cases to recognize because now that we have treatments for autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, it's important to really have an accurate diagnosis. So as you mentioned, uh, similar patients might have a family history of kidney failure, kidney cysts, and then it's kind of an autosomal dominant inheritance. So someone would come and they would tell you, my mother and my grandmother reached kidney failure in their 60s, 70s. They had cysts. They called them polycystic kidneys because that was the only diagnosis at the time. And now we're realizing that not all kidney cysts are due to ADPKD. So there's the PKD1 mutations, PKD2 mutations, but there's still about 10 to 15% of patients who don't have PKD1 or PKD2. And there's a group that, we're try- that, that are now through genetic testing, we're understanding there's potentially GANAB mutations and other ADPKD mimickers. So where you're mentioning that the kidney cysts or the kidney uh, size is not congruent with the GFR, meaning that that patient had uh, doesn't have huge kidneys, so their total kidney volume is on the smaller side, mm-hmm. although they have bilateral kidney cysts perhaps, but their their kidney length is probably either smaller or to a normal size, and then their GFR is, is much sm- much lower than what you expect with the cystic burden. So always when you're trying to match the cystic burden to the GFR, it's important to kind of put it in context. So uh, do these cysts are causing such a low GFR or there's another process? So there are entities that are uh, closer to the ADTKD, so the mm-hmm. autosomal dominant tubular interstitial kidney disease, where these patients would have kidney cysts, they have an autosomal dominant inheritance, so family history, but uh, they have more of interstitial fibrosis leading to that lower GFR. So these patients, you would have, again, bilateral kidney cysts, low GFR, they might have gout, uh, high uric acid, they might have family history of early gout, 
They might have low magnesium, some genitourinary malformations. So things like ADTKD due to MAC1 mutations, uromodulin, HNF1-beta with also early onset diabetes. And there's this new entity called DNAJB11 associated uh, disease that can cause bilateral kidney cysts. And it's kind of in between uh, ADPKD, ADPLD, and ADTKD. So it has polycystic livers, polycystic kidneys, and more of an interstitial fibrosis component. And these patients kind of have good GFR up till they reach their 50s and 60s, and then all of a sudden they just kind of yeah. really accelerate their kidney dysfunction. That, that, and that, I can see why that can be very confusing with something like ADPKD type 2, which similarly presents, but then you have more typical presentation on imaging. Yes. So would you recommend uh, genetic testing often to patients who, are, who have non-congruent findings on imaging and GFR? Yes, absolutely. So this is one absolute indication to obtain a genetic testing, uh, having a panel of cystic genes to look for PKD1, PKD2, and all these new genes that are being discovered, and also look at polycystic liver disease genes, and then the autosomal dominant uh, tubular interstitial kidney disease genes. Those are very important. Uh, and then the, the main way of diagnosing these patients through genetic testing. That, that's great. You know, the atypical, I think, cases are really important. Once in a while, we also see cases uh, with uh, atypical, and by atypical, I mean unilateral uh, cyst enlargement or sometimes asymmetric cyst enlargement with uh, one side more than the other. Is the prognosis for these similar to what you would see in ADPKD type 1 or type 2? Yeah, those are, again, also very interesting cases where just either they're asymmetrical, so either one kidney is all cystic and the other kidney has one or two cysts, or half of the other kidney has cysts and then the other kidney is very cystic. Um, so these patients actually do much better. Uh, uh, they're called focal ADPKD or atypical ADPKD Mayo Imaging Class 2A. Yeah, so typically these patients do, uh, do very well. They have very good prognosis. And since they have a preserved parenchyma on, on, on either a portion or, or a whole kidney, then they do very well uh, from kidney uh, function standpoint. There is, however, a, a Mayo Imaging Class 2B, and those patients have bilateral kidney cysts. They have ADPKD, but they have atrophic kidneys. Uh, and these patients don't do as well. They might have vascular disease. And for all 2A and 2B patients, they, it's about 5% of all ADPKD patients. So I think you brought up the important Mayo Clinic classification, which is really what everyone hears about is the Mayo class 1A to 1E, which is for typical ADPKD, and that's how we stratify patients and decide on either you know, uh, disease-modifying therapy or other interventions. So thank you for bringing up atypical PKD. All right, so moving to the next case. So uh, ADPKD is a systemic disease, and it has many extrarenal manifestations, and one very serious extrarenal manifestation is intracranial aneurysms. So one of our patients is a 29-year-old female who comes into our clinic. She has ADPKD that has been diagnosed recently, and she comes in uh, having a family history of ADPKD and her father who had an intracranial aneurysm and required an intervention. So she's a little bit worried, and she's asking you what to do um, and how to approach it. Yeah. The, the, this is, I think, uh, thankfully a well-recognized phenomena both amongst nephrologists and perhaps even primary care practitioners uh, and others now that intracranial aneurysms tend to cluster in ADPKD. So the prevalence of intracranial aneurysms is anywhere between four to six times higher in the PKD population than it is in the general population, um, and they tend to cluster. So if someone has a family history, the likelihood that they have it or the, one of their siblings or someone would have it would be higher than in the general population if someone had it. 
Uh, and w- we have certain criteria, and one of the reasons why we screen for uh, aneurysms is that in PKD patients, these aneurysms tend to occur at earlier ages. They tend to rupture about a decade or so earlier than in the general population. And aneurysm rupture can lead to significant comorbidities, if not uh, death. So we want to identify and try and intervene. So in, in, this, in this case, for instance, where uh, this woman has a history, family history of uh, her father having an aneurysm, I think it is an absolute indication to uh, screen her doing uh, an MRI with an angiogram to make sure that there is no aneurysm at this time. Great. Yes, we, that's what we would recommend is, is obtaining a brain imaging Typically, we obtain a brain MRA, uh, as you mentioned. So uh, this patient had no uh, intracranial aneurysm. Would you recommend a repeat uh, MRA, uh, and how often would you repeat that? So so that's, I think, a very good question, Uh, and that's because we don't have very high-quality data on how often uh, and, you know, in, to repeat. Now, if we found an aneurysm, that's a slightly different approach because neurosurgeons tend to repeat imaging usually one or two times in a year first. If that's stable, then they push that out to maybe every year and then every three years. Mm-hmm. But in somebody who doesn't have an aneurysm but has a family history, they're probably still at an increased risk of developing aneurysms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people have tried to model this out using different retrospective data sets, cost and effective analysis. And the, rec- the consensus recommendations right now seem to be about repeating once every five years mm-hmm. or so. Um, and I think that seems to be acceptable to most patients because they want that reassurance as well Absolutely. that they don't have something ticking that could uh, be devastating if it ruptures. Absolutely. Yeah. Repeating every five years with, with the high-risk patients. Who, who else do you think is a high-risk patient that we should screen? So in people who don't have a family history uh, or who don't have, you know, um, new onset headaches, that's obviously very concerning. So Mm -hmm. if someone has new onset headaches uh, or any kind of visual changes, neurological changes, you want to image them. But outside of that, I think the uh, the other... populations that we would like to screen are those who have uh, high-risk occupations, pilots, bus drivers, mm-hmm. people whose life, who, who have other people's lives depending on their mm-hmm. uh, jobs. Uh, if you are undergoing uh, high-risk surgery and you have a history of PKD, for instance, so if you're undergoing cardiac surgery, vascular surgery, large intra-abdominal or hepatic surgery, where you're getting general anesthesia and you want uh, to make sure that they don't have an aneurysm that could uh, rupture. I think that, that those are populations. The one other condition where I would perhaps screen is if a patient is being put on systemic anticoagulation. Mm-hmm. Let's say they have atrial fibrillation and they need to put on it. Whether just being on an anticoagulation increases the risk of rupture, we don't know, but definitely if it ruptures, I think making uh, controlling that becomes a lot more complicated. So it's worthwhile considering whether you want to screen those populations as well. And then you mentioned kind of repeating uh, imaging if we find an aneurysm. So how often would you repeat the imaging if, if we find an aneurysm in ADPKD patients? Okay. Again, uh, this is extrapolated really from a lot of the neurosurgical literature where they've studied aneurysms and the recurrence. So uh, most often we try and repeat an imaging six months after the first initial imaging and then about 12 months later. And if both those are stable and don't require an intervention, then probably annually for the first two or three years and then maybe every second year or so is usually what my colleagues in neurosurgery would recommend. And they have far more expertise in dealing with this and following up imaging sizes, so I would defer to them. Excellent. Yeah, that's what we do is once we discover them, we do the monitoring and then we do the referral to our neurosurgeons. Right who have done great. And in fact, we looked at our experience at Mayo Clinic uh, and we screened about uh, 812 patients who 
uh, as pre-symptomatic screening. So mostly before a big surgery or before their kidney transplantation or if they are at high risk. And we found that the prevalence was about 9.3%, so about 75 patients uh, had uh, aneurysms. And then on follow-up, um, there was no rupture, thankfully. So we tell our patients that uh, it's reassuring that there's no rupture. So even if we discover these patients, uh, discover these aneurysms and the pre, uh, pre-screening, pre-symptomatic screening, then if we follow them uh, serially, uh, we can do interventions to uh, such as clipping and coiling, and then we can prevent uh, we can prevent the, the rupture. Yeah, right. All right, Fouad. So let me just introduce our final case, and this is something that I have uh, uh, often encountered in clinic, where we have patients over the age of 55 or 60 who are sometimes referred, uh, especially since the advent of tovaptan's uh, approval from the FDA, and they are often asking me if they are qualified, and I'm wondering how you approach these cases. Yeah, this is a great point. Right now, uh, in a practical guide, uh, we recommend uh, tolvaptan for patients at risk of rapid progression, age 18 to 55 with EGFR 25 and above. So Mayo Imaging Class 1C, 1D, 1E. So this is not controversial, and this is based on data from Tempo 3.4 and Reprise data. However, in Reprise data, the patients in the group of above 55 to 65, the placebo, uh, the placebo group had a GFR about 2.5 ml per minute per year as a GFR rate of decline or slope. And by definition, it's more on the uh, slow progression. So the placebo was in a slow progression uh, phase or status, and then tolvaptan did not show an effect uh, on, on this population. However, there's emerging data, uh, such as the NKF uh, poster last year that showed pooled data and pooled analysis of patients who are above 55 to 65, and there's still some benefit for patients who are between 55 to 65, but there's, we should have a very good evidence that they have rapid progression, so such as... Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, how would you identify these rapid yes. progressors? Well, so typically is, uh, in addition to having probably Mayo class 1C and 1D, because 1E, most likely they've already been on dialysis. So if they're 1C or 1D, and then they have a historical GFR decline above 3 ml per minute per year, over a good average of time, I think they do, uh, these patients would benefit from tolvaptan. So there's the, this emerging data, um, and then we owe it to our patients to slow their disease project progression, even if they're 55 to 65, because any additional years of dialysis is very precious. And our patients, even if they're in their 60s, they're still very young. So we, we need to do everything possible. Of course, in addition to treating well their blood pressure. Uh, through ACE inhibitors and ARBs, and then having good hydration, avoiding any nephrotoxins, and all the general CKD uh, care as well. Excellent. So don't rule someone out just because they were older than what the trial included. Absolutely. And then the hope is in the next few years, we're going to have also additional treatments that we can offer to our patients. So we'll base this off uh, trials, the clinical trials and their results. Excellent. Thank you so much for that discussion. Thank you. All right. So now that we're then, let's briefly cover what we've uh, gone over today. Uh, pain, as we know it in PKD, is a complex condition. It could encompass everything from stones to infections to cyst ruptures. And essentially, it needs a multidisciplinary approach uh, and a patient-centric approach to treat. Absolutely. Then we covered in our second case, how do we identify atypical kidney cystic diseases, uh, including ADTKD, ADPLD, and other atypical ADPKD patients, such as focal ADPKD or Mayo class uh, 2, 
and then the role of genetic testing to identify and diagnose these patients accurately. We then discussed the importance of screening for aneurysms, in what patient populations we use this, what the follow-up of these should be, and again, the importance of neurosurgical referral early on when detected. Perfect. And in our last case, we described how we manage patients with ADPKD who are above 55, and then the controversy and the shared decision to start uh, Tolvaptan. And we rec- we, there's emerging data that there is a benefit uh, to use Tolvaptan in this age group, 55 to 65, when they have evidence of rapid progression. Well, I would like to thank you, Dr. Garimela, for joining me in this webcast today. Thank you. We hope uh, you find this presentation useful in your clinical practice, and thank you for your time and attention. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources and is supported by an independent educational grant from Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.